Last night we did the first part of Madhu Pindika Sutta, the sweet essence. It's one of the more difficult discourses, but very interesting. We started at the beginning how the Buddha was meditating and he was accosted by Dandapani, who um, was quite arrogant and aggressive in the way that he asked him about the teaching. So the Buddha gives him the blast, the full blast. Dandapani doesn't understand what he's talking about, but responds to what he does not understand by rejection. So he walks away. He doesn't stop and ask a question and find out what's going on. So the Buddha goes back home and he tells the story and then including the teaching that he gave and of course the monks don't understand but they actually ask him so he expands it and then walks off and they still don't know what's going on so they ask Mahakachana who is foremost in explaining in detail what has been given in brief and after scolding them for bothering him instead of bothering the Buddha he gives this famous passage he goes through each of the six senses but we'll just look at um, we'll look at the last one mind depending on mind sensitivity and phenomena mind awareness arises the meeting of the three is contact contact conditions feeling what we feel we perceive what we perceive we think about what we think about we proliferate because of what we have proliferated we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation regarding past, future and present. So basically what Mahakachana is laying out is the process whereby we start from elemental experience, which is happening right now through all of the six senses, and then go through this process where we create a kind of prison um, through our addictive obsession, through our obsessive conceptualizing and our clinging to those concepts and our mistaking the concept about what's going on for what's going on. Uh, and so we create a prison out of our concepts. Um, and these are concepts and thinking that are completely out of control, the proliferation, they're just blagging, the mind is just blurbing forth, spewing out all this stuff. Um, and we lose touch with the world of direct experience. And so it's like we're living in a dream, but we don't even know that we're dreaming. And Mahakachana um, lays out this whole process and then he explains about um, waking up from the dream. And this is what we're looking at tonight. Now, this, of course, is the central aspect of the practice that we're doing. Uh, what, we, what we do in this practice is we study our dreams. And we study ourselves creating our dreams. Um, and therefore creating our prison what we take to be normal what we take to be real and the limitations each one of us has within this supposed reality uh, and in 
doing this in really becoming intimate with the whole process of creating a self, an imprisoned self, a self that suffers, the very act of seeing it clearly starts to pull it apart, starts to tease it apart. There are cracks in the edifice and these cracks we can work on and start to tease them apart and the whole thing starts to collapse. Um, now the, the end process which we'll get to at the end of all this we still live in a world of concepts because concepts are absolutely fundamental to making our way in the world but the difference is that we now understand that a concept is just a concept um, I think we talked about this before a concept is like a sign in front of a building so in front of this building there's a sign saying Blue Mountains Insight Meditation Centre now are the words Blue Mountains Insight Meditation Centre are they the Blue Mountains Insight Meditation Centre no they're not and they never can be it's impossible for them to be. Um, but that, does that mean that the words on the sign are useless? No. Because they tell us where the centre is. They're very useful. Especially if you haven't been here before. You're driving along the street and you see a sign. Ah, Blue Mountains Insight Meditation Centre. This is where it is. So... Concepts are useful, they're necessary, but from the Buddhist perspective, in order to fulfil their true purpose, we need to understand their real nature. We need to understand that a concept is a concept. And what a concept is pointing towards is something else. It's something different. So... This, so Mahakachana starts to talk about this whole business and he, he, um, he starts to inquire what is it, what lies beneath what we think is really going on. In other words, what do we find underneath the concept, underneath the dream? Um, so he goes on and again you notice that this whole analysis in this sutra is based on the six sense fields. And so Mahakachana is still using this template. He says, uh, and he does this for um, each of the sense fields. When there, uh, when there, there are eye sensitivity, forms, and visual awareness, we find a ground for conceptualizing contact. So if you have eye sensitivity you have visual forms, you have visual awareness, that's where we find a ground for conceptualising contact. Um, you notice he doesn't say the meeting of the three is contact. He's coming at it from a different angle. So what do you say, content? Or? Contact. Contact. Yes. So, eye sensitivity, visual forms, awareness, the standard teaching says the meeting of the three is contact. 
But here, Mahakachana is saying, where you have those three things, you find a ground for conceptualizing contact. And then he goes on, where there is a ground for conceptualizing contact, we find a ground for conceptualizing feeling. Where there is a ground for conceptualizing feeling, we find a ground for conceptualizing perception. Where there is a ground for conceptualizing perception, we find a ground for conceptualizing thinking. Where there is a ground for conceptualizing thinking, we find a ground for conceptualizing concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation. So you get this multi-layered cake, which he's gone through before, but now he's looking at it from a different angle. Uh, the first layer, the second, the third, the fourth, boom, boom, boom. But um, uh, here, previously, he was talking about it from the perspective of how we create a person who is a victim of circumstances beyond their control and is harassed, endlessly harassed by these proliferations, caught in self, caught in time. Here he's going through the same multi-layer cake, but he's looking at it um, in terms of its radical simplicity of ground and concept, tana and panyati. And here we have two more technical terms. I'm sure you're pleased. You probably... Mm-hmm. What's ground? Tana, T H A N A, and Panyati, um, P A double N with a little curly bit on top, A double T I. So first of all, ground. Now, as soon as Mahakachana says that, everybody in the audience knows he's talking about dependent arising. It always comes back to dependent arising. Um, Back in the 80s, I spent a fair bit of time at Wat Swan Mok, kind of in and out in my different trips through Thailand. And um, was influenced by the teachings of Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he really emphasised the centrality of dependent arising. And he said, if you understand dependent arising, you understand what the Buddha is talking about. If you do not understand dependent arising, you do not understand what the Buddha is talking about. It's really that simple. So, and you can see that again and again and again, it all comes back to this. Um, so, we've talked about dependent arising, how, uh, how well, its basic message is that experiences arise dependent upon other experiences. So, if something happens the arising of that something depends upon something else. And when it ceases, its cessation depends upon something else. So everything is embedded in this multi-dimensional network. Now, for something to arise, for something to happen... It needs a base, a foundation, a ground. It has to be located somewhere. It has to be um, founded on something. Otherwise, it could not manifest. So, let's take as an example uh, this 
I, this teaching of contact, the immediacy of experience. Contact is the coming together of sense sensitivity, sense object, and their corresponding awareness. So we've spoken about this on a number of occasions. Now you notice how this is structured. Each, you have three elements. Each one is grounded on the other two. Um, and together, you, when they come together and they, they ground each other, then, bang, something happens. So you've got um, a network of events and each event, sensitivity, awareness, sense object, is grounded on something else. So take, for example, awareness. We've been working with awareness all through the retreat. Um, uh, when I am aware, I am aware of something. Right? It's not particularly controversial, is it? So another way of looking at it is awareness is grounded on its object. It needs that object in order to exist. Um, and awareness is grounded in the other direction. For there to be awareness, there has to be, of an object, there has to be a corresponding sensitivity that can pick it up. Take, for example, hearing. So there's awareness of sound. That has to be grounded on the sound itself. But equally, on the other side, it has to be grounded on the hearing sensitivity. Now let's say you change the hearing sensitivity. There are species, of course, that hear sounds that we do not because their hearing sensitivity operates at a different frequency. So there are species that are hearing things that to us is silence. And maybe it's vice versa. <clears throat> maybe we hear things that other species don't hear. Because for the experience to arise, it's got to be grounded. So with awareness itself, it, there's two sides. There's, it's grounded on the object, but it's also grounded back on the sensitivity itself. And this sensitivity grounds the whole thing. Um, does that make sense? <clears throat> now, all of this is just natural process. And as we said, there's absolutely no problem with it. It's just nature. But what happens when we place too much importance on what grounds experience? Let's look at, for example, the six sensitivities. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, minding. Where are the five? Well, they have specific location. Here. So seeing can only occur here. Hearing can only occur here. Um, touching can occur throughout the whole body, but it can only occur here. It can't, cannot occur there. It's grounded here. Mind is a bit 
trickier. Does mind actually have location? Um, there's a sense in which it, it feels like it does, in that when I think, uh, sometimes I have the sense of thinking here, but on the other times, if I get lost in a fantasy, it separates from here. And we've been talking about this, and the, the role of mindfulness of body. Part of it is to keep, keep the thinking process itself grounded on the five physical senses. So this experience is grounded. It's here. Uh, but what if I take the ground too seriously? Um, and what if I um, take as real well if it's grounded here there must be someone here who's doing all this so here I am this is me this is the soul <clears throat> and if there's concepts going on these concepts must be grounded on me they must be about me, and they must. And if they're about past and future, they must be about my past and future. And so we become obsessed with our particular stories. Um, so that's ground. Then you get concept, panyati. Um, When there is a ground for, uh, when there, when there are eye sensitivity forms and visual awareness, we find a ground for conceptualizing contact. When there is a ground for conceptualizing contact, we find a ground for conceptualizing feeling. Now, concept here always has the implication of meaning. Concepts give meaning. They tell us what it means, what the experience actually means. What, what its significance is. <clears throat> and for there to be meaning, there has to be some degree of interpretation. So let's say a thought. A thought pops up. I can conceptualise that as this is a thought. Or I could conceptualise it as this is just a thought. Now the meaning is different. And with that different meaning, there's a whole different relationship. If I'm a meditator and I have this, oh, this is just a thought, I'm not putting anything extra on it. It's just a thought. It doesn't signify anything else. Or the thought arises and I my if and my concept might be this is my thought and it's about me so the only difference is the meaning that I put on it and the meaning is just a concept so I change the concept and I change the significance of the experience and everything that follows from that so concept is very important the concept creates the world of meaning what I think even what I assume is going on is all created by concept now what Mahakachana is 
doing here, he's pointing out the ubiquity of concept. It goes incredibly deep into the mind. Um, so he talks about contact, feeling, perception. Now these are really basic fundamental movements of the mind to create an experience world. But Mahakachana is saying that actually when you look at what we do, we conceptualise contact, we conceptualise perception, we conceptualise feeling. We're adding something to it all the time because we're, we're, we're imposing an interpretation on it. It has to mean something. And that is the realm of concept. Um, but what this does is it cuts off the simple immediacy of contact, perception, feeling. It's, we, yesterday we talked about it. As, it's like cling wrap that's been wrapped over the experience. There's something getting in the way. It's not completely clean. Uh, there's a degree of alienation there. And this sense of alienation goes extremely deep. How does labelling the experience fit with that when we're using the Mahasi method or something like that? Uh, if you identify with the labels or get stuck on them, you've got serious problems. The labels are meant to simply direct awareness, aim the awareness. Uh, to do this kind of work, the awareness, is, the attention has got to be very refined. Now how do I develop a, def a refined attention? Well I start with working with the obvious but I learn to aim as precisely as possible um, the awareness through the act of attention. And the name, the label, is all about the aim. Now, at some point, it gets in the way. And then you drop it. And if you need it again, you use it again. But if, you, if it gets in the way, you drop it. The classic instance of getting in the way is if you're doing the standard Mahasi three-step lifting, pushing, placing and then at some point you realise you're going lifting, pushing placing, lifting pushing, <laughs> placing lifting <laughs> and what's, what's happened is that you're using the concept to aim awareness but instead of awareness going to the actual experience, it's gone to the concept it's gone to the name so you've got a kind of bizarre mantra and the, the ease with which this happens shows, demonstrates the ease with which we get lost in concept that we mistake the event we mistake the concept of the event for the event so this is something that and the more refined it becomes the awareness becomes the deeper you can see this process happening the actual label is part of perception, though, isn't it? Uh, labeling? Mm -hmm. Is it? It's part of perceived perception. Uh, part of perception in the sense that you perceive the label, or that it helps perception? Yeah, it's contact and Includes the oh yeah, perception yeah, is recognition. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think that that's um, 
a kind of deeper, more unconscious labelling. But it is a labelling. Yeah. 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 But it's not what you're talking about here with regards to perception. No. Yeah. Here we're just talking about if you take a name and mm. use it. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, for example, do you think right now that you can see me? Mm. That's a concept. Mm. And yet it's just it seems real it seems to be the actual thing but it's a concept a, hopefully a useful concept mm-hmm. um, now Mahakachana points out that this whole process requires a ground it needs to be grounded on something um, and we we assume that what we take to be real is solid but we can't maintain that perception unless the ground on which it's based is also solid. Um, but what is the ground? If we actually search for the ground, what do we find? So we looked at contact, the immediacy of experience. Um, the ground there is a dynamic interrelationship between three phenomena. um, Sensitivity, sense object, awareness. Uh, Each of them grounded upon the other two. Um, In other words, it's like a house of cards with no table underneath it. And all... I mean, this is the very foundation. And all it is, is this little little house of cards pull out one card the whole thing collapses and there's nothing underneath it so where's the ground so this is what Mahakachana then uh, starts talking about (coughs) when there is no eye sensitivity no form and no visual awareness, we do not find a ground for conceptualising contact. When there is no ground for conceptualising contact, we do not find a ground for conceptualising feeling. When there is no ground for conceptualising feeling, we do not find a ground for conceptualising perception. When there is no ground for conceptualising perception, we do not find a ground for conceptualising thinking. When there is no ground for conceptualising thinking, we do not find a ground for conceptualising concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation. So, here, he's pulling the rug out. And this no, not, tells us that we're in the area of anatta, not-self, and sunyata, emptiness. This is the the realm of the not, the no. Um, And what he's specifically talking about here is the cessation of the sense fields and therefore the cessation of everything else that is built up on top of them. So no eye sensitivity, no form, no visual awareness. Cut, cut, cut. Now, if there is no eye sensitivity, no ear sensitivity, no nose sensitivity, 
no tongue sensitivity, no body sensitivity, and no mind sensitivity. What does that mean? Dead. Dead. <laughs> so, is he saying, look, don't worry, I can solve all your problems. Line up here. Single bullet to the head. Guarantee no further problems. Um, no, he's not saying that. He's saying something quite different. Now, but, you know, quite challenging. So to get a sense of what he's talking about, let's look at another discourse, which is a discussion between Mahakotita and Sariputta. <coughs> uh, they were friends, and uh, there's a number of discourses where after a day's meditation, they gather in the evening and they have a little chat. And some of these chats became um, sutras. Uh, and in this particular evening, what they're talking about is what happens... Uh, is this, They're talking about the cessation of the six fields of contact. In other words, what Mahakachana is talking about. And specifically, what remains, what's left over after the six fields of contact fade away and finally cease. What's left? What is there? And uh, Mahakotita asks Sariputta, is there something still left? And Sariputta replies, actually he says, Mahevan, which could be translated as not that. Um, and so Mahakotita says, well, then is there nothing left? Not that. Is there both something and nothing left? Not that. Neither something nor nothing left. <clears throat> Not that. So what Mahakotita is presenting are the four logical possibilities. A, not A. Um, neither A nor not A. Both A and not A. So these are the four possibilities. Um, outside, of, There's nothing outside of that range of possibilities. So is there something left? Is there something not left? Is there something both left and not left behind? Is there something neither left nor not left? So all possibilities are covered and he gets the same answer each time. Mahevan. Not that. Um, now this, this answer is interesting. It's not simply no. Um, it's um, if you break it up it becomes ma plus he plus eva um, eva is emphatic he is emphatic and ma is like is a prohibition it's both it's um, it's both it's a uh, prohibitive denial and an emphatic denial. It's both no and don't even go there. <laughs> it's bang. Don't even go there. Patrick, is that different that that does not apply when the Buddha was asked about? Where yeah, it's a, it's a different response. It's, different. Um, it's coming at it from a different angle. 
But it's more emphatic. Like yeah, it's just boom. Much more emphatic. It's uh, th- that does not apply. What was the word for that? What's the uh, uh, upeti, I think. But I have to look it up. But that's more like philosophical discussion. But here it's not. Don't do that. It's like bang. It's much more direct. It's got a certain Zen flavour to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sariputta goes on to explain, which is not very Zen, because Zen they would never explain. <laughs> he says, to say that there is something left after the six fields of contact cease without <laughs> remainder is to proliferate what should not be proliferated. Or you could say it's to complicate what should not be complicated. Uh, to say that there is not something left, that there both is and is not something left, that there is neither something left nor nothing left after the six fields of contact cease without remainder is to proliferate what should not be proliferated, is to complicate what should not be complicated. In other words, you're just adding another concept on top of it. As far as the six fields of contact extend, that is the range of proliferation. And as far as the range of proliferation extends, that is the range of the six fields of contact. From the fading away and cessation without remainder of the six fields of contact, there is the cessation of proliferation, the calming of proliferation. And these terms, cessation, niroda, and calming, upasamati, both indicate nibbana. They both indicate the awakening. Um, what do they mean by the cessation of sense contact? I mean, they surely don't... I'm sure they don't... I'm sure they don't mean that we should be blind and deaf. You know? No, no, no. That is, well, let's... Shall we have a little Zen story okay. to try to explain this? This is um, from Case 20 of the Book of Serenity. Um, Lohan Kui Chen asks Fa Yen Wen Yi where are you going? Now this is the context of the story in China in the Chan tradition and in t- even today in Korea in the Son tradition the basic rhythm of the meditation monks and nuns is that they ha- each year they have a s- summer retreat and a winter retreat and each retreat lasts for three months. <coughs> so they, if you're a, a meditation monk or nun in these traditions, you spend six months of every year in intensive retreats. Three months on, and then you have a break for three months. And then three-month retreat, break for three. Three-month retreat, break for three. And you do that for however many years <coughs> you want to keep doing that. Now, at the end of each retreat, people scatter. Uh, and they go on pilgrimage, quote-unquote. Now, pilgrimage could be anything. It could be, oh, let me out of here, I'm going to take a holiday. Or it could be, now I've got to go to the study monastery and I've got to study sutras and, and vinaya. Or it could be, now I've got to go to the fields and get some, put, put some work in. Or whatever. Could be. Or it could be, for the next retreat, I want to go to another monastery where there's another teacher, and you could be doing the rounds. Could be anything. Lohan is the teacher. 
and Fa Yen is one of the students, uh, a senior student. So at the end of the retreat, people are leaving, Fa Yen is leaving, and Lohans uh, says, where are you going? It's an innocent question, which in the Zen context is never innocent. <laughs> Equally, the question, where are you coming from, is never an innocent question. <laughs> um, Fa Yen said, I am on pilgrimage, following the wind. So he's got no specific plan. He's, it's not that he's got a fixed idea what he's going to do. He's following the wind. Lohan said, what are you on pilgrimage for? So, what's your purpose in doing this? <clears throat> Fayen said, I don't know. Lohan said, not knowing is most intimate. <laughs> Fayen suddenly attained great awakening. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get a sense of what's going on here? If there's no laying of any concept on it, that is complete intimacy. And with intimacy, there can come awakening. Of course, Fayin was right. I mean, he's been doing a lot of meditation. And of course, Lohan knew he was right. He knew he just needed a shove. It's very common, for example, that um, um, in the context of a retreat, people often say that when insight arises, it arises more often in walking and daily activity than in sitting. Because the pressure's off. Mm. Equally, people will say that insight often arises after a retreat. Mm. Again, when the pressure's off. So, Fa Yen has been in a pressure cooker for three months. Mm -hmm. And just when he's leaving, that's when the teacher pounces. <laughs> and because he's so ripe, Fa Yen gets it. Not knowing is most intimate. No concept added on top of it. Nothing getting in the way. And this is what um, Sariputta is getting at. He says... To give any answer to that, to create any concept about it, is you are just complicating what should not be complicated. You are proliferating what should not be proliferated. The question itself is just more proliferation, much less any answer. Um, any concept or description that we produce as an answer has to be grounded on something. But Sariputta is speaking about a state in which there is no ground for anything at all. Sorry, this kind of brings me back to the question from last night a little bit. Where, where does planning fit in with this uh, and or procedural memories like the, me the memory of how to walk or like say the Buddha wanted to go to X city so that he could go and spread the word there. Mm. He had to plan that in his mind. That's right. But on, and as he was it. planning it in his mind, he was quite clear it's just a plan. Mm. 
in his mind. So that self wasn't wrapped up in that. And no, yeah. and he had no investment in the reality of the, that future event. Uh, he didn't mistake his concept of that possible future event to be real. Mm. It was just a thought, a plan coming up in the present. It was just mental activity happening now. That's it. How's that fit with the cessation of all sense stuff? Um, that's actually what we're talking about. Mm. Uh, the conceptualization, the imposition of meaning that gets in the way, gets in the way because we hold to the ground we get ourselves mixed up in it. <clears throat> we think, this is me. Ah, this is contact. Bang. We've just put a concept on it. And we hold on to the concept and we believe the concept to be true. And all of our energy is going to the concept and not to the actual experience. The experience is a sense of cleanness where you're not putting anything on it at all where in that intimacy there is no felt sense of past of future of present or even of purpose it's just the activity itself I'm just doing it not even the I that gets in the way there's just the doing is just the activity. Uh, the first time I got a sense of this was actually long before I got involved with Buddhism, but when I was, I did um, acting classes back in my uh, misspent youth. Um, the classes in what was called the method by the Russian Danisovsky, who I've recently discovered was actually influenced by yoga and Buddhism because um, Buddhism has um, been part of Russian culture for centuries uh, from Central Asia um, but there we, we would do exercises and it would be some and it was a theatre in the round so people are the students are gathered there and the teachers there and the, and the teacher would, would give the class an exercise and anybody could get up and have a go and it might be something like, look for something and then find it. So you're on this stage and everyone's looking at you. And what you do is you look for something and then you find it. Now, um, if the, the highest praise that you could get was that was a clean action. In other words, you were not acting as if you were looking for, for something and finding it. As far as any external observer could see, you were looking for something and then you found it. There's no, nothing put on top. And they, the putting on top they called act acting. <laughs> so a layer on top of the acting. Um, and when you actually did it, when you were on, on stage doing this exercise, you always knew if you were clean or not clean. It was so obvious, the difference. You didn't need to be told. But when you were clean, 
there was a smoothness and a beauty to it that was really quite extraordinary. Uh, and that's the first time I got a... And I was reminded of this years later when I'm doing meditation and things began to come together. Uh, um, like last, last time when I was doing my own meditation in Malaysia, um, I do these self-retreats in this, in this hut and every day I clean the hut and the veranda. So at first I sweep and then I mop. And one day I was mopping and I was being, you know, practice, trying to be continuously mindful. And I'm doing the mopping. And I suddenly realised what the Zen expression meant when they said to do something with your hands empty. There was no mop. And there was no veranda. And there was no one mopping the veranda. It was just so obvious. Hmm. But of course, as soon as you put a concept on it, it starts to crumble. Hmm. So, this is what's meant here by cessation. Uh, it's not cessation in the sense of you don't see, you don't hear, etc., etc. It's cessation of any concept about hearing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, etc. You're not putting anything on it. If you're not putting anything on it, it's not cessation. Because if you say that's cessation, you've just added something. You've just stuck in a concept. If you say, oh, that's contact, you've just, bang, put something on it. If you say it's not contact, bang, you've just put something on it. If you say, etc., 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 it's the dropping of all that which is the cessation of everything. Patrick, what about perceptions? Um, I was thinking when you said you look at me, then you're looking at Patrick as a concept. Mm -hmm. However, if I was to walk along a street and see you coming in the distance, seeing a person coming in the distance, and then I'm looking at this person, and then suddenly I have a recognition that mm. that's perception. Yeah. But then from that perception becomes proliferation. Yeah. Conceptualising. As you as you realise what how lucky you are that you've bumped into it. <laughs> but the perception the perception does that fall away as well? Like you're talking about not you're not perceptions aren't falling away. We have we have perceptions. And I need to I need to have the memory of you to recognise it as packet. Mm. And I, I actually say, Oh it's packet. There's a there's a I can, I can be aware of perception as perception. It's mm. mm. And it's the same as when you know, I'm in the dark and I'm looking at something and I can't quite work it out. Oh, it's a cup. Mm. Now, that's, is that both a concept or a perception or a mix of both? It's, what this is talking about is the cleanness of the experience of it. Um, it's the, the dropping away of any barrier... Um, well, you could you could say it's the dropping away, in this case of perception, perception, the the, the per perception. It's like the the extra bit of added on. Oh, I'm perceiving. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's taking everything away except the natural process. But the natural process includes 
everything that the mind-body does. So it includes walking down the street, recognising someone, going out, having a chat, etc. So in the one of the emptiness sutras in Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha talks about how it's in a state of emptiness that he can do things like the work involved in being a Buddha and talk to kings and to potentates and to businessmen and to followers and so on. That when he does that, when he's being engaged in worldly activities, he enters into a state of emptiness in order to be able to do that most effectively. Which means that when it's happening, he's not getting in the way. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It, it makes sense. I'm just, I'm just processing in my mind mm. that the cleanness of perceptions, like, and and along and along with that, the cleanness of action. Yes. Um, so you get and again the this comes out in the Zen stories the way that they're structured. So you have a story in which a student is goes to the teacher and um, to find out what's going on but doesn't understand the encounter because it's really weird gives up, decides he's going to go to he's going to leave and he's advised, well at least say goodbye to the teacher so he goes in and he says goodbye to the teacher and the teacher says oh you should go, well then go and see so and so and refers him to another teacher and when he goes to this other teacher he has an encounter with the other teacher in which he's realises what's going on and he has his great awakening and he comes back to the first one. Now in the midst of all this you have that he, when he goes to see the first teacher say, I'm out of here, I'm going and the teacher says, oh, well go, go and see so and so. Did that teacher plan that statement? Did he have this as a policy option in the file to deal with this particular student? No. It just came out. There was no planning. He didn't think about it. He says, well, do this. And it turned out to be the thing which helped stimulate the awakening of that student. Or, let's say, when I'm um, doing the interviews, someone comes in and they present me with their story. And what I have to do is listen very carefully and try to say something useful. If I have, if my, um, before I say something, usually I've got no idea what I'm going to say. Zero. But if while the person is speaking, I have a sense of, I have to try to sort this out so I can say something useful, then probably what I will say will not be particularly good. But if there's none of that, if I'm just listening and just seeing, and then I just say something, that's when I'm at my best. Mm. And often I surprise myself. Like, where did that come from? I don't know where that came from. Mm. So this is... It, it, it's, it's an action which is clean because it's not adding any conceptual overlay on the, pur- on the purity of the experience. This is what they're talking about when they talk, when they talk about their attention. Like, that, is it Masakara? I think somebody said that that's what it is, their attention. Mm. It's just 
same things as that. But that's always that's always easy to understand and and practice when there's the five senses, the five physical senses. When it comes to mind, bear attention on mental objects is one thing that I do with uh, what I intend to do with settling in this mind, this natural state where I just open my eyes and I watch my mind and just let watch the tendency for the mind to conceptualise its own concepts. So um, I think that comes back to that bear attention with mental objects mm. bear attention with like seeing you uh, perceiving Patrick bear attention with that just to see it as Patrick, just Patrick, mm. <laughs> without adding further on to it. Yeah. Without adding on, adding on, oh, here, here comes Patrick, now we're going to have to step back to that, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so then when you have an encounter with someone, it's, it's, there's a spontaneity there, yeah. which would otherwise not be there. Yeah. yeah. So is this, could this be an example where... Um, in, in English, there actually is already a translation because it sort of sounds like a lack of self-consciousness. And self-consciousness could be like a made-up Pali translation, only it's not. Uh, self-consciousness in the sense of... Well, some of what you're talking about is when you're... Um, when, you, when you're not suffering from self-consciousness it's a so, easier to do things yeah so I mean self-consciousness can be seen as consciousness of oneself mm-hmm. with paranoia added mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a quality of paranoia to it or, or even <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. well, I'm, I'm seeing or a, a, an imagined other maybe mm. rather than necessarily paranoid yeah but yeah so what if you had could you have self-consciousness without any imagined other? Would that be possible? Sometimes the imagined other is dead. <laughs> but could you have self-consciousness without any imagined other? Would it still be self-consciousness? Um, I suspect not. Mm. I'm thinking about con- the concept and the thing of being locked or freed from concept. Mm. So if I'm in a room and the door's locked and I can't get out, you know, I'm a prisoner of that conceptual room. If the door is unlocked, it doesn't mean to say I can't use the room anymore. It just means I'm free to come and go. Now, I've just gone back to live in my own old hometown and so I'm meeting people who haven't seen me for 10, 15 and 20 years. And I really see the difference between people who are locked into the concept of who I am who I am. So some people come to me and they respond to me because they're completely locked into the concept of who they think I am from 20 years ago. And they're completely locked into that and I'm not that person anymore. And other people aren't locked into that concept or their own set of concepts and they, oh, you're the person I recognise. So perception's there. They, they recognise me as a person they knew. But because they're not locked into their concept of who I was, they're open to experiencing who I am now. So you're the person, I recognise you, who are you? Yeah. And it's the same movement. That's right. So yeah. there's that openness to the direct experience of what is, while still being able to use 
the conceptual framework of recognition. Mm. So it's using concepts, not being used by them, is essentially mm. what they're talking about. So hence the, the, the Buddha and the awakened ones, just because they're not locked into concepts doesn't mean that they can't use them. And one of the implications of this is, you've got the, let's clean out the consciousness like dipping a bucket into the ocean and keep getting, throwing away our delusions and attachments and trying to get them all out or just cut through the whole mass by not identifying they're there but by not identifying with any of them mm-hmm. slice cut, cut clean through mm. and that's a whole different move mm. but it requires and this is why this practice is so central that intimacy is something that we start with by patiently cultivating over a period of time. So if you look at our, our story um, with Fayen, he had who knows how many years hard work, mm-hmm. but at some point, oh, got it. Mm-hmm. And those, those moments, you know, meditators routinely report that suddenly, oh, so that flash of seeing when things drop away, and it's all clear now. Uh, and this is the insight side but the serenity is the patient working away just being intimate so dropping the proliferation dropping it, dropping it recognising it, dropping it recognise it, drop it, drop it, drop it drop it, drop it this is the humdrum day to day work of the meditation practice but at some point the process ripens and then something falls away You were saying that often the insight comes when the pressure is off, mm-hmm. and just then you were sort of saying it ripened. But earlier, I, it was in the context of not having concepts. Sort of, I'm just wondering whether there's a link with effort and all of this, like wrong effort. Mm-hmm. That sometimes the wrong effort is actually excessive conceptualization. Yeah, often wrong effort comes from a concept. It's, it's like a concept of what it should be, uh, what should be here, what should not be here. So this experience is not good enough. I've got to somehow push through it to get well, to... Be thinking uh, yeah, or I should not be thinking this. So I've got to suppress it. So that underlying that is a concept of what who the meditator should be what the meditation practice should be what the experience should be but it's just a concept so giving up those concepts it just seems to me like there's a link with um, effort there is there's a close link with effort and um, when there's when we're in a world of concepts it's much harder to find if not impossible to find right effort so right effort in its purity is associated with the dropping away of these concepts but it's a gradual process it's like it's, you become more refined with it over a period of time this is the serenity aspect it's like working bit by bit and you get better and better and better at it but then there's the inside side where it ripens and suddenly bang, ah, oh, that's what it is so there's the two sides. 
the practice side and the realization side, the serenity and the insight. What we can do is the serenity. Um, so Mahakachana gives this teaching, and the bhikkhus, I think, if I recall correctly, are reasonably pleased. <laughs> and uh, next day, they they report all of this to the Buddha. And the Buddha approves. He says, yep, I would have said the same thing, except I just wanted to bugger off and watch some TV. <laughs> and then Ananda says to the Buddha, Bhante. Now, Ananda was the Buddha's young, younger cousin. He was probably about 20 years younger than the Buddha. Um, and he was the, attend- he's the Buddha's attendant for the last 20 years of his life. Um, Ananda says, Bhante, just as one exhausted by hunger and weakness coming upon a honey ball, a madu pindika, would find a sweet, delectable flavour when he tasted it, so too, any practitioner with a good heart who investigates the meaning of this Dharma discourse with wisdom would find joy and inspiration in his heart. Bhante, what is the name of this Dharma discourse? As to that, Ananda, you may remember this Dharma discourse as the honeyball discourse, or the discourse of the sweet essence, Madhu Bindika Sutta. So this is, again is interesting. It's like these discourses were often named at the time. Wow, that was interesting. What would we call this one? Uh, and um, marketing, yeah, marketing. And but in particular, it's um, the Buddha says. You may remember this Dharma discourse as. In other words, you're going to recite this. So they create, they edit a form for recitation, and now you can give it a name. What shall we call it? So they're creating teaching as they go. Now, the, the, the sweet essence. What is this sweet essence? Well, of course, it's the essence of absolutely no essence whatsoever. <laughs> It's the unconstructed. It's the taste of Nibbana itself. Nothing at all to write home about. Okay, that's enough for tonight. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.